This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Travis Chambers, chief media hacker at Chamber.media. On this episode, Travis shares how he drives engagement through genuine human connection, how he's been able to drive hundreds of millions of views with shareable social videos, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are in an undisclosed location in San Francisco, California. Travis, what's going on? It's a good day, man. It is a great day. And we're going to talk about some scalable viral videos, which is always fun. We're going to talk about uh, your company, Chamber Media. And uh, we're going to talk about some uh, ways that you can use videos uh, in, your, in your daily, as you're, as you're looking at videos in your daily repertoire here. But before we get into any of that, Travis, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Well, my dad was a sales guy at Monsanto, which unfortunately gave everyone cancer. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just, it's just raised, it's just in my blood. So I kind of just grew up knowing I'd be in marketing. It's a convergence of entertaining people, but also selling. And it's, it's the new way to sell, you know, no, no one wants to be a good old boy salesman because they're going by the wayside. So marketing is the way you can reach millions and they choose. It's not like, there's not a lot of face-to-face personal pressure, like the old way of selling. So I kind of just always knew from a young age that the marketing was probably what I was going to do and, you know, did all those marketing competitions. And my dad would bring me on like, you know, their board advisor stock report meetings, conference calls. For some reason, as a 12-year-old kid, I was interested in that. So that that was kind of it. And it just, it just kind of like one thing led to another. And fortunately, I found a niche that is really needed in the marketing space. Yeah, and you are working with some really interesting founders, uh, specifically focusing on B2C or, or you know, direct-to-consumer about building scalable social video ads. Why did you kind of come up with this focus and, uh, and start the company to begin with? It, it all comes from the philosophy that you've got to be in the fast-growing and newer space in order to have aggressive growth. So I'll give one example. Like I went into digital marketing when digital ad spends only accounted for 3% of all media buying in the United States. Because I knew if I go into if I go into television, if I go into the traditional ad world, I'm competing with 40, 50, 60 year olds, I'm competing with veterans, which means I'm not going to be able to progress. The same thing is true with direct to consumer brands. We have all these household brands uh, like Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, you know, all these Fortune 500 brands that we've all grown up with, and our most in most cases our grandparents have grown up with. They're all being disrupted with new challenger brands. These are challenger brands that have never been able to compete on this scale. Growing a big brand used to take 10, 20, 30 years. Now there are consumer packaged goods brands that are growing to a billion dollars within four or five years. They're almost behaving in some ways like tech. And it's not because the products are even in the same realm of revolutionary or innovative as tech. Tech is in its own crazy world, but it's because they can go to market in a way that's never before been possible. Yeah. You know, we're talking about RX bars because I ate one before, uh, before we recorded. And, uh, yeah, you see that, you know, that company getting bought for, I think it was 600 million. You see the speed in which a direct to consumer company can be created from essentially idea through 
revenue in such a such a fast scalable manner. And ultimately, like the people who are running these are brilliant marketers. Like they have figured out opportunities. They're seeing different ways to optimize ad spend, and they're investing a lot of money into it. What are you seeing from the video standpoint that makes video a clear opportunity? You know, everybody was talking about pivot to video a few years ago, and everybody realized, okay, this is actually really hard to do and really expensive. So I'm curious, like, why video? Yeah, and when we say video, we're we're talking like social video. Because, you know, 40 years ago, if you wanted to go compete in the snack bar space, you had to have the capital to take out TV by yeah. Then you had to have the inventory to fulfill that. It was just a giant operation. So now with social video, you can get straight to people, you know, with, with audio visual that's optimized that can be any length of format you want. It could be five minutes. It could be five seconds. You can serve it whenever you want, however you want programmatically. And then you can target in a way that's never before been possible. So the efficiency of reach has completely changed. And social video is really at the center of that. I mean, how many people do you know that use Facebook and YouTube more than a few hours a day? I mean, it's over 80, 90% of people under the age of 70 that are using it that frequently. And so these social platforms have unprecedented data on people. And we've all seen the controversy. We all saw Zuckerberg testify in front of Congress the amount of data is so deep. Any rewards card that you use at retailers, Nielsen data about media that you consume, that you watch, any credit cards that you've used, that that is all being sold anonymously to Google and Facebook and these other social media companies. And, and their engineers may not be able to necessarily go and see your individual profile and the data that, that they have on you because it's anonymous, it's encrypted. But the platform and the program can. So these platforms know everything about us. And the reason people get so creeped out thinking that Facebook's listening to them is because the ad, the data is so intuitive that Facebook knows what you want before you do. And, and it's evolved even in the last five years because five years ago, it was all contextual and search-based, you know, which is less creepy. So I'm going on Google and I'm saying, I really need an AC unit, right? I'm putting that out in the universe that I'm, I need this. But now these platforms know before you even go look for it and they can prospect, essentially. We call it prospecting where you're going out and you're finding people who are in market. They're, they're the perfect customer for you and they're just lined up. And so this has never been before been possible. So, you know, is there some sort of you know, calculation that you all look at for a static ad versus a video ad versus a GIF, things like that? Yeah, so we've we've tested dozens and, I mean, well, we've tested thousands of pieces of creative. We call it quantitative creative. And what we've found is right now, 2019, what's working the best is is having an anchor video, which is what you would think of when you see a Dollar Shave Club video. Right. It can be anywhere from one to five minutes. It's it's typically higher production, really high writing quality. There's been a lot of energy put into something that's unusual, that that relates with you, that surprises you, is unlike what you're used to seeing and hearing, and sticks out from the fray, the barrage of the thousands of messages we get a day. It's 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 all the same components of why you would watch one Netflix show over another or one news report over another. And so that goes into this anchor video, which introduces you to the brand, it entertains you, it asks you to buy, you're now educated about this thing, and most importantly, you remember it. And then underneath that, there's a whole sequence of videos, and it varies based on what your product and brand is. But under that, you're running really anything that is going to convince people, now that they've been introduced to you, to give them everything they need. So for some people, they need to see testimonials. For some people, they need to see product demos. Others, they need to see press and credibility and social proof. And some need to see a before and after. There's dozens of different types of creative that persuade different types of people. And we've even gotten to the point now where we've tested and we've, we've kind of concluded that there's actually 
two camps of people psychologically that buy with different messaging. So we found that about half of people respond to something that's really well produced and beautiful and impressive because they assume that if the brand can do that, then that means the brand can be trusted and the product is quality. But then you have this other camp of people I would say are more skeptical. They want to feel like they found it or discovered it in the wild. Yeah. They want they want something that's raw, that feels authentic yep. and organic. I mean, sadly, most of these people don't realize they're still consuming an ad. Yeah. It's just been created and optimized differently. And so so it takes it takes all of these things. And so it's become much more sophisticated than TV ads used to be. You used to run you know, when I was at Crispin Porter and Bogusky, you'd have a team of like 50 people working on eight Applebee's spots for the year, you know, and you'd have this huge bureaucratic and political process in deciding. And, and, and these ads weren't optimized based on how they perform. They're optimized based on what these executives liked subjectively and maybe some focus groups. And we all know focus groups can be pretty inaccurate. So we're at the point now where you can create dozens of assets and test people's credit cards. Because credit cards don't lie. It's pretty interesting. You know, you, you look at something like the movie industry or, or whatever it is. Um, I saw something that was really funny the other day where somebody got a show greenlit by a studio and then they went to the like EP and uh, the studio was like, hey, if you go talk to the EP, then uh, then we're good to go. And they went and pitched the EP and they the EP didn't know that they had already got approved by the studio. And the EP was like, there's no way any studio would approve this. <laughs> but like this is the, it's the same sort of thing in a large organization where you're just going based off of people's gut reaction to a piece of copy or a piece of content when there's no need to do that anymore, right? Like I'm really curious to see like what are some of those things that you've noticed that allow things to be scalable. Like you, you intentionally don't use the word viral a lot. I'm curious why, what you think makes something scalable and why you look at scalable rather than viral. Yeah. There was a brief period where virality was really attractive and it was only about a five year period. And that's because all of these social platforms were hungry for users. Anything that, that their algorithm deemed high quality content that would bring people to the platform, they would give it tons of preference and tons of reach. Well, that's never happened before in media. Like you've got 70 years of TV, you've got over 100 years of radio, and you've never been able to just put content on a platform and get reach for free. Yep. You had to do a radio buy, you had to do a TV buy. Your company, your brand, your product, it only exists in what you pay for. And for this five-year window, for the first time ever, everyone thought, oh, this democratized social media stuff is free. We can get post the right thing and people will share it organically. Well, there's no way that's going to last. These, these companies are taking on huge burn rate, Facebook and Google and YouTube. And then they're, they're having shareholders. They're, right, there has to be a profitable business. So the reason that something has to be scalable and, and what that means is if it can convert and you, you can attribute profitable revenue from that, then that means it's scalable. So you'll get ads now that really aren't that funny, aren't that shocking, aren't that interesting, but for whatever reason, they work. They convert. The message converts people. And if you can convert, then you could spend tens of millions of dollars behind that asset. And that's now a scalable asset. It's a pretty boring idea, right? Let's like test and iterate and then find the thing that works and then pour money into it rather than being a hit maker, right? Like being a hit maker is fun because there's a lot of excitement about around making hits. You know, it's like being a home run hitter. Well, it's fun to get something for nothing. Yeah. It's like, that's awesome. It's not as fun when you're paying for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the same thing as, uh, as, as PR, right? We're going to try to leverage something that and get earned media. But the idea is like, there's a cost-benefit analysis to focusing on that. There's headcount that you put into it. And if you're a direct-to-consumer brand, you don't have time for any of that, right? PR's changed in the same way. Well, yeah, it's, oh, completely. Right? Like, I think it's 2000, 2011, I was finishing my journalism major, and I was realizing journalism's dead. Yeah. They talk about the people who have gone to the dark side 
to of PR, right? Journalists that go to the PR side. Yeah. The dark side took over. That's all there is now. Yeah. Like, they're very, there's very little true journalism happening, in my opinion. Oh, no, totally. I mean, it's uh, it's brutal. I mean, it's something that, um, yeah, it's sad to see that the business model doesn't necessarily catch up with with the impact that it can create and having, you know, journalists be important to the fabric of society. But, you know, I, but I. Like 1995, if you do something super stunty, or let's say 2005, right? You've still got a lot of big websites because we did this all the time. We do viral stunts to get attention. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, and you, you could build companies with that. But now, like people just don't trust press the same way they used to. So it just doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. And I think. And it's a 24-hour, you know, news cycle, and it's like, what? Like, Kardashian could outdo the New York Times in some cases. Oh, uh, probably, I mean. Which is crazy. She probably does every day. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of those things come and get forgotten and are not memorable. You know, we talk about marketing needs to be remarkable. And the truth of the matter is, like, to stand out, to be something remarkable— if you're building something that is a one-off thing, like as good as, you know, we talk about how great the Dollar Shave Club like Anchor Ad was, and that's like one of the memorable pieces of of media of the last, you know, five years or maybe that was a little bit longer. That stuff is hard to do, right? Like really, really, really hard to do. Man, but, they shot that for seven grand. That's crazy. Which that makes it even more impressive. Yeah, right. But I think, but you look at, you know, like the movie Swingers, like that was shot for like under... $500,000 like the Napoleon dynamite a hundred grand. Yeah. But so it, but it speaks to, I think this idea that, well, if that's the case and we know that quality is still important, we know that writing is extremely important. We know that all of these things, then what are we going to optimize towards something that we can build a scalable model around that can be repetitive and continuous and remarkable in some way that's going to speak to the customer's issues, or are we going to do stuff that makes us feel good as marketers? Right. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's whether you're in-house, right, at a company, so you're like director of marketing at, at, at a company or, or wherever you are, as marketers, we always get caught up in our subjective vanity. You know, like we all want to be working on the cool, sexy thing, right? We want to get press for what we're doing. We all want ad press or marketing press, but that's just a big echo chamber. And, and sometimes I, I've seen that some of the stuff that's not very sexy really does well. And, and it's all about performance. And you, even the same thing with like brands and products, like you'll get, you get a lot of people who are chasing the same message or the same trendy product category. Meanwhile, there's some category that's not sexy, like credit repair or something like that. And they're just like laughing all the way to the bank. And they're never going to be an ad week. They're never going to be, you know what I mean? Performance is the new sexy, in my opinion. But you're not going to share those lessons with people, right? A lot of people are, if they find the uh, the channel that's working really well. They're going to keep not, it to themselves. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that you, speaking of that, what are some <laughs> of the things that you've seen in the companies that you've worked with that have done really well? So I'd say solving pain has been a big learning over the dozens and dozens of, you know, products and brands that we've we worked on selling and we've seen that if it's a want or it's kind of like a luxury good it can be a struggle but if it really solves pain it'll usually sell so we've had a success with skincare you you'll do anything specifically acne you'll get you'll do anything to get rid of adult acne yeah right that's not a want that's a need and getting to the heart of that message is really important. The other thing I've seen too is people are really sick of disparaging ads that make you feel incomplete, like you're not good enough. And I feel like the new way of marketing is is relating with you in an empathetic way where you feel it makes you feel good. Yet you're still you're still showing the disparity and, and you're still showing the pain that you can solve. You, I mean that's marketing. You have to show the problem and the solution. But that's what we've seen. Like the biggest successes, Mr. Cool, it's a do-it-yourself AC unit. People are sick of paying so much money to an HVAC guy who's coming into your home and doing a high-pressure sale. They just want to install it themselves, and they're hot. No one can stand being hot for a long period of time. Or you take Transparent Labs. They're a pre-workout supplement brand. They sell like protein pre-workout. You would think it would be impossible to sell a workout supplement. 
I mean, that's like the most commoditized thing. There's got to be over 10,000 brands yeah. selling the exact same stuff. But the truth is, is when you want to be swole yeah. <laughs> and you're in that, you're in that part of life and that frame of mind, like it's a need, you know, and if you access that pain and that need, you'll sell. And uh, Pool Fence DIY is another one. And by the way, these are all companies that we've doubled or tripled their revenue in the last two years. And that's using using video or how? Using social video ads. So creating a suite of videos that are optimized to drive sales in the right kind of combination and sequence, and then running those ads proficiently, right? The right kind of targeting. But like Pool Fence DIY, you get this message, I have a pool and my young child could drown. I mean, that's it's pretty harsh. Yeah. It's it's like a pretty compelling sell. And so th- those are the things that we're seeing. And as we're heading into a recession too, that's going to be even more important because the first thing people are going to cut are wants. Do you feel like there is an element of if you build it, they will come from people who are making video ads that's like, we spent so much money on this shoot. We really thought about it. We really crafted the message a lot. We're focused on this customer pain point. And people, this is really going to resonate with people. And then they kind of get crickets and don't spend the money to promote the asset. Because I feel like there's some amount of that that's still kind of the catch up of like, oh, well, we can we can hit gold on this and and get get virality from it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's dead. It's over. And even when virality was possible, you're talking like a lightning strike of luck. I mean, and you're still buying a ton of traffic. I mean, you look yeah. at like the the 30 million, you know, hit videos, 100 million, 250 million. Like those all got popular and then got boatloads of money dumped into them as soon as they were popular. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Dollar Shave Club, you had this $7,000 video. They spent they spent tens of millions behind that asset. And when I was at Crispin Poor and Bogusky, I developed the content strategy and, and did the ad buy and the viral seeding for Kobe versus Messi, mm-hmm. which still to this day is the most viral ad of all time, according to Time and I, a, a survey that YouTube did. They came out, so this is the most viral ad of the decade. We had Kobe Bryant, we had Lionel Messi, but neither of them had ever had an ad on YouTube get more than 8 million views. And this thing got over 145 million views and 3.5 million shares. But as viral as it was, as huge as celebrities we had, like 90% of the views were still paid. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? And that that other 10% or 15% of earned media, that gave it a lot of credibility as like a social movement that a lot of people walking down the street could could identify it. But but yeah, it's it's paid. I mean, if you don't pay for the distribution, it's really not worth doing it at all. I think about like always on video ads now as something that, you know, like we've talked about this a ton on the show, just about how many ads that companies cut early for no reason other than we want to change. Like successful ads that they've been running on TV for four years or whatever that people actually enjoy that have that are a connected story that are consistently getting in front of people and then they change the ad campaign to something totally different for no real reason. And so pretty much studies have shown that they're almost always cut too early. It's rare that an ad is cut too too late. But agencies are telling companies, we need to make more stuff. Well, yeah, totally. Exactly. Right? And so, the CMOs are saying, I need, I need to get some more awards, accolades. We need to make some more stuff. But we, we've seen, to your point, we've seen stuff last for a year and a half, two years before it fatigues. Now, granted, we've seen other stuff that fatigues after eight months. But we'll go recut that stuff for Facebook and YouTube. We'll, we'll, we'll recut it. The algorithm thinks it's new. Because the truth is with social, with social algorithms is when something starts to get too high of a frequency, they'll start to deprioritize it because they don't, they don't want people seeing the same thing over and over again and getting annoyed, right? Yeah, which is not a thing that you have with TV, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm saying— I've never gotten sick of Geico ads. Yeah, no, exactly. But that's what, that's what I'm saying is like— you know, especially when you see certain companies now that they actually have the ability to run the same ad. Um, you know, the best example might be Chick-fil-A. Yeah. The eat more chicken thing has been running forever. Forever. Chick-fil-A does more revenue than a Subway, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined. 
and it's freaking, I don't know, I understand it. It's chicken on bread. But that campaign, they've been beating that horse for so long, and you know, and they just got a new agency and they're doing some new stuff. But it's like, but yeah, but that's that's I think the point that I think where I'm kind of going with this is that I mean, we talk about how if you're going to create an ad and you're going to put the effort into creating a character, then like make them a three dimensional character, make that person have an episodic journey that you could run for a hundred episodes, for example, in your mind, so that you can then just continue creating asset after asset. And then it's always fresh. It's always new. You don't get some of that fatigue factor. But now with social, like you said, you are actually prohibited from the fatigue part. Like, you know, on on network TV, you can run the same ads over and over again. And it's not going to like decrease the amount of people that it goes to, right? But with social, it actually does because of the algorithms. So you have to think more creatively with social. Yeah, there's actually, we've actually done studies. You can actually spend less money than someone else. But if your ad is better and the algorithm has decided that people like it more, gets more engagement, more watch time, you can actually get priority and win those bids. So I I can spend 10 grand behind this and someone else is spending 50 grand and and I actually may be able to outperform them as far as reach goes because Facebook and YouTube, they want they want a good experience. They want people to stay on the platform as long as possible. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great point. And I think a lot of people, to what you were saying earlier about clearly articulating the pain point, people will pay attention to an ad that articulates something that they actually do need, especially if it's done in a creative, engaging way. Um, I'm curious, so then how do the anchor, how does that anchor content, that anchor video, how does fatigue work with that? Because you want to put this over, like this, you want this people to continually come back to this thing, but yet you might get fatigue on it. So, so what I've seen is fatigue happens when you've saturated your audience. So there are some products that are easier to saturate than others. Like I'd say pool fence DIY is going to be a quick, quicker saturation than a skincare. Yeah. Because a skincare, it's like, Everybody's got skin, not everybody has a pool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be like 50 million people with adult acne in the United States or, or some something regarding that. But like you said, yeah. So you can fatigue an audience with the same message where they get sick of seeing it. And if people do get sick of seeing a certain ad, which does happen, they'll, they'll start to flag it. Right. You can't flag a TV ad. But on Facebook, you can see, say, why am I seeing this ad? Yep. I don't want to see this ad anymore. I don't want to hear from this company anymore. And then the more that happens, the more you deprioritize. You can even get to the point where, like, you can't even spend behind that asset anymore in some cases. So saturation really comes down to market size. We are of the opinion that once someone has seen something five or six times, the the frequency, they're going to start to probably get a little irritated after that, unless it's really, really good. Like how many times can you listen to Toxic by Britney Spears? And how many times can you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen? Yeah, totally. You know, it's about the same. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I mean, it's got to be like 5X on Bohemian Rhapsody, right? And that's what you're really looking at with creative. And and you've got to also think about what types of assets. And so what we've seen with the anchor videos is in most cases, they can last anywhere from eight months to two years, having hundreds of thousands of dollars run behind them. But the smaller assets, like a static image ad, or maybe like a 10-second product demo, or maybe like a one-second testimonial, those things fatigue much quicker because they're not highly produced, they're not well-written, and there's not a lot of entertainment value there. So something small that's like a simple thing, you can irritate people really fast. But something that's really good and really enjoyable and entertaining can definitely have a longer shelf life. What's your favorite campaign that you've been a part of? I think Mr. Cool, which is an AC, a do-it-yourself AC unit. It's called like a mini split. And the reason is because that was like mission impossible. <laughs> that that should never have worked. So Mr. Cool is owned by a company in Hickory, Kentucky. And they're a pretty big company. Uh, I think like 80% of people in Hickory, Kentucky work for this company. Oh, if cool. I had to guess, they're like two hours outside of Nashville, family-owned business, salt-of-the-earth people. Uh, and they sell a lot of like conventional, traditional AC unit-related products. So so they launched this do-it-yourself thing. And it's like, how 
when they approached us, most people on the team said, this is impossible. There's no way we can do this. How are you going to sell an AC unit that takes five or six hours to install? How are you going to target people, first of all, that need AC? that, That in of itself is extremely difficult. Like there's one person in a neighborhood of 30 people that are currently in market to get an AC unit. And then furthermore, how are you going to specifically reach people who have enough confidence to do this themselves? I mean, they're plugging into the electricity in their garage and they're drilling holes in the wall and they're mounting stuff and connecting outside their house. And and so they they did 10 million. We launched this campaign. We worked with Penn Holderness. He's like a pretty big Facebook influencer, has had a bunch of viral hits. He was the spokesperson. And then we also shot like a sitcom style video, like a 90s sitcom kind of spoof. And we launched, you know, with a few hundred thousand dollars a month in ad spend. And this company that had done 10 million the year before, mostly through search, mm-hmm. search ads and like Google shopping and stuff like that, goes to, to 24 million the next year. And then we do it again the next season, the next selling season, already over 34 million on pace to do 50 million. This company has like two or three people on the marketing staff for this specific brand. And they're not really doing a whole lot else. You know, it's it's selling on Amazon. They're on homedepot.com and they're in a few other online retailers. But for a company to go from 10 million to 50 million in two years, simply with Facebook and YouTube ads, just it just shows you the power of what can be done in this direct consumer space. Now, my caveat with that is Mr. Cool is not going to be able to go from 50 million to 500 million, in my opinion, with just social ads. And the truth is, is not everyone's buying stuff through Facebook and YouTube ads. You totally. know, you and me, like in our generation, we do, we get excited about it. But the truth is, is companies still have to grow through TV, print, radio, retail, traditional methods. And the reason I say that is if you look at the top 10 direct consumer companies, you know, we're talking Harry's, Dollar Shave Club, Allbirds, Warby Parker, you know, any of those that you've seen, they, they all start playing old school game. Totally, yeah. Subway takeovers, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Warby Parker, they've got a retail store in New York and it's like more cost efficient than any other thing that they do. Now, granted, they're not going to do 50 million a year through one retail store, but so, so as much as I'm, I'm saying how important social is, it's still not everything. And, you know, like um, our head of acquisition works with Bryant Garvin. He was at the beginning of Purple Mattress. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So took them to 196 million in their second year. I mean, they got pretty big. They got to do a few hundred million a year only running social ads, you know, and now they're starting to take out TV and do all those things. So, so really in conclusion, like you can get to that first few hundred million in a way that's never been possible before. And then once you get to that point, then you got to start playing in the big leagues. What about, uh, you know, your worst campaign or biggest learning experience? It doesn't have to be necessarily a customer you've worked with, uh, you know, recently, but throughout your career. There's two huge failures that we had. One was a box mattress company. And we tried too hard to make this video viral. Yeah. And we tried to tell too big of a story with too big of a narrative and we, we tried to go too far into the, the pure entertainment world. Yeah. And the message got lost. There was no pain point addressed. The, the visual comparisons weren't there. We, we got too arrogant in thinking that by entertaining people and having big sets and, and big, big stuff that it would work. And it failed miserably. Most projects, most companies we've worked with you know, there's a selection process and the metrics, the metrics show, okay, this can be successful, right? With this one, it was, it was pretty, pretty huge failure. I think it was like a negative 80% return on ad spend. So like you spend a dollar, you get like 20 cents back. It was really bad. And so that's what we learned is you can't sacrifice the message and you can't sacrifice the sale and what we, we, we as marketers may consider to be the boring stuff that's not sexy and fun to talk about with your buddies and your weekend barbecue. And, and that's what we missed. And we didn't miss that with Mr. Cool. Because like I said, we made this really funny, crazy 90s sitcom 
commercial that was really fun to make. But then we also shot this really straightforward video of this spokesman in his garage. And he's got this neighbor named Sweaty Bob who's coming over because his garage is the coolest in the neighborhood. And this video is not near as funny or interesting as the sitcom video, but it nails the sale. I mean, we're going into like time-lapse product comparisons. We're showing how it works. We're explaining the process of how to install it. And we're addressing people's potential concerns. It's more, it's not as funny. It's not as interesting, but that thing freaking crushed it. And it was less fun as marketers to make that, you know, and we as marketers got far less attention for making that, but the revenue was a very different story. And I'm really glad that we learned that lesson. Yeah, it is such a critical lesson because I think a lot of times, you know, you just got to got to take the ego out, right? Is like, do you want the person to tell all their friends about your ad or do you want them to tell all their friends about how their house is cool, right? Like that's at the end of the day, you're trying to get them, you're trying to drive word of mouth of the actual impact that the product had, not about, you know, the ad unit. And the truth is as marketers, we often think that we have a big part in culture that people really care about what we have to say, but they don't. People don't care about advertisements. People don't want to see advertisements. And I feel like when brands maybe try a little too hard to fix themselves into culture, they can cause problems. Now, granted, there's empires that have been built off of implanting themselves in culture. Nike, you know, Apple, these iconic brands. But that's not, that's not always right for every brand. And one of the most common mistakes I see is companies and brands thinking that they, they can be Nike you know, and that, that brand is everything. But the truth is, is the Nike world and the underworld scum of the internet affiliate marketers and the late night infomercial marketers, those worlds have officially converged and, and you have to be in the middle. So as a marketer now, you have to think like a direct response marketer. You have to think like those late night infomercial people that you despise with with the black and white stuff, with them fumbling in the kitchen. And so you still have to use those direct, direct response. And when I say direct response, I mean, is you're going for the throat, you're going through the sale. And I, I feel like in the early 2000s, we as marketers got like really romantic that we could just build beautiful messaging and, and say beautiful things about humanity and build these beautiful brands. And I think that ended with the recession to a degree. You know, we were in this time of great excess. Anyways, that's, that's what I'm seeing across the board is marketers have to be more scientific. They need to be more performance oriented and they can't get like romantic about how this brand is going to, you know, no, no one cares. You know what I mean? Last question before we get into lightning round here. I'm curious, what would be your, your piece of advice for someone who you know, is on a budget who is, you know, maybe they're, you know, that one or two person marketing shop of a direct to consumer brand that wants to dip a toe in the water of creating a social video, but just hasn't done that yet because they just know that there's potentially a bigger price tag associated with the creation and promotion of that asset. So the thing that's expensive about video is not necessarily the production, obviously productions can get huge. And it can get huge. It can get be, huge. To be fair. <laughs> we've, we've done $150,000, $200,000 productions just for social. So it's not even talking TV type money. The expensive thing though, it's, it's, it's not the production. It's not the equipment. It's not any of that stuff. The, the expensive thing is the talent. If you can write and you can think and you can identify the pain that you need to solve and you can figure out the right mechanisms and the right levers to pull, and if you can run those ads in a really proficient way and figure out how to target people and A-B test things, that's what's expensive. Like when you're paying for something like that, what you're really paying for is all the expertise. And the reason I say that is that also means you don't have to have a ton of money to be successful. There's tons of companies that have had incredible success on shoestring marketing budgets as far as creative goes. One of my favorites is Chubby's. Chubby's is a bunch of frat bros. I mean, I don't even know if they're in a frat, but their brand is very frat bro-ish. Definitely, yeah. But like most of their their videos are them in an office 
doing crazy stuff and it's cheap stuff. It's stuff that you could shoot on an iPhone. And to prove my point, I have a buddy that owns a treehouse village in Dominican Republic. There's 25 tree houses he's built into the remote jungle. It's, it's three hours from the nearest airport. We, we went there on a trip and my wife is not an actor and I shot her on my iPhone with a script I wrote in like 10 minutes on my iPhone notes of her explaining everything about the village in the same Dollar Shave Club anchor video style format. That video got $50,000 in ads behind it. It drove $250,000 in sales. For a, a location, a destination that historically had only done a few hundred thousand a year in revenue. Yeah. So the fact that we could do that on the iPhone, and, and I mean, she had she had the iPhone headphones tucked into her shirt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking like really low quality. Just goes to show you, it's it's the writing and it's the thinking and it's it's the ability to persuade is really what's important. And you really shouldn't get too caught up in the technical aspects. The, the only reason to get caught up in those things is to make sure that your brand is represented well for those people who really care to see something that's well done. Because if your video is really shoddy, well, then they may assume that your product is too. You know, I think if you were to go to a Nike shoot and see what goes into that, I think you'd be really nervous about you know, what your brand could do. It's like, you know, they have a photographer who's only doing the slow motion foot coming off the pavement, rocks being kicked up in the air. Like that's its own photographer, videographer. So I think that stuff can just feel a little daunting, right? But if you're focusing on like, what is the impact you want to have for your customer? Um, The other thing too is like, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show, but go find a real customer that uses your stuff and let them tell you why they bought it. And like record that, right? Like it's another thing like people want to use things and like influencers can work crazy well, all sorts of stuff like that. But also like when you're talking about, hey, this is a real person who did it. There's a reason why that stuff works is because it's authentic, right? That sort of thing um, can give you insights that you didn't know before. I think our industry in the marketing industry is pretty propped up by a lot of corporate lifers who don't want to lose their job. So, so I have a CMO or a vice president of marketing or whatever. They'll hire the most expensive agency that they can find in LA. And I mean, there's commercial directors down there that bill 50, 60, 70 grand a day. And there's nothing really that special about them. There's just like this Fortune 500 thing that exists that, that is people not wanting to lose their jobs. Because if it goes wrong, well, it's like, well, we hired the best. So if the best can't pull it off, it's not my fault. But there's this huge market out there of direct-to-consumer challenger brands that are emerging in the last seven or eight years that that are taking over. They're not doing these $1 million productions, right? They're running stuff that they made for 50 grand that they're spending $10 million behind on TV. So we've got to like look at what performance is and God, there's just so much waste out there that's happening. Totally. And I think that the waste is, you know, again, the market will kind of adjust on on a lot of that stuff. And there's room in the market for extremely high production quality. And there's room in the market for low production quality. And you need to just be thoughtful about which ones you're doing and why. All right, let's get into the lightning round. Lightning round questions. Fast and easy. Just like marketing automation with Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM, that is Salesforce. And, you know, we didn't talk a bunch of B2B today, but, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are so fascinated about B2B marketing or maybe they're in it. Go check out Pardot. We love them. You will too. Lightning round questions. Travis, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what's your favorite thing to cook or eat? Favorite thing to cook would be steak, probably. Favorite vacation spot? Bali. What app on your phone is the most fun? Notes. I just love writing ideas. (laughs) What is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Joe Rogan. I'm obsessed. JRE. We love the JRE. Hidden talent or passion? I was in a band, but it's been a while, man. I was I was in some metal bands in high school. I was like a 12-year-old drummer playing rock bands. Maybe that's it. <laughs> um, what are you most excited about for the future of marketing? The, the most, uh, by far, the convergence of, of TV and social. So 
the inventory you can get right now on smart TV apps is really low. Yeah. It's like in the tens of millions, not hundreds of millions or dozens. So when that convergence happens and everything goes programmatic, that is going to be awesome for advertisers. I don't know if it's going to be good for mankind or humanity, but I'm excited for that. I, you know, we haven't had anyone say that, but smart TV applications is so freaking exciting. The fact that like the Sony Crackle app and some of these other things that people have made is like mind-blowingly cool. Like that stuff is like, you look at that, you're like free movies app and all these things and you're like, those are some. Do you think Netflix, Netflix will ever serve ads? They say they never will. I don't think they ever will. I don't think Reed will will do it, but they're going to get way further into branded content, in my opinion. They already do a lot of product placement. Look at Stranger Things. Stranger Things was like a branded content buffet. Yeah, this season. I've got I've got a buddy who who's focused on that, and his company's just blowing up. Yeah, because yeah. you can't reach people through Netflix other than through integrations. Yeah, I mean, we talk all the time on the show about the power of those type of things. But when your brand is associated with somebody's favorite TV show, that's a pretty good thing. That actually is memorable. And they do watch that over and over again. Like imagine if you had some like really good product placement and friends. Think of how many impressions you would have done. So, Even still today. Yeah. It's, oh. It wasn't the most expensive. It's the most expensive franchise, right? I think for a TV show. I think Netflix just bought it or someone just bought it. It's got to be, right? It was, I know it was in, Billion plus. Yeah, it's got to be. What's funny is remember when everybody threw like, was like all like, oh my goodness, the cast of Friends gets a million dollars an episode each. <laughs> yeah. And everyone was like crazy, yeah. like in the last seasons of Friends. And it's like, think of how much money that franchise has made. Yeah. Since since that, a million dollars per episode, you'd pay 10. You know what is weird though, is to see all these actors wanting to be entrepreneurs. Oh, I know, yeah. And they're all starting direct consumer brands. Yeah, of course. What's, well, her, what's her name? Honest Company, Jessica Alba? Yeah, yeah, Honest Company, yeah. We had the former uh, head of marketing at Honest Company on the show. Oh, yeah. Um, Is that Shannon? I can't remember. Um, Shannon, yeah. Shannon Pruitt. Yeah, Shannon. Yeah. yeah, I ran into her at the Google Growth Summit. Yeah, she is a really, really sharp marketer. Shout out to Shannon. Shannon, call me. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, But yeah, no, I mean, it's fascinating. You see athletes and uh, and all this stuff, like, why would you not, right? Like, why would you not go buy yeah. a percentage of a direct-to-consumer brand rather than buying, like, a restaurant? Yeah, and then it's like, any, anyone that's not a top 100 football player, baseball player, like, what do you do after you get injured? Oh, no, totally, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I actually, someone was telling me, one of our employees' brother is a mental coach for MLB teams, actually took Boston Red Sox, was with them with the championship. But he said that, a majority of baseball players don't ever get any brand deals from anyone because there's so many of them. There's just a sea of them, right? And they're getting paid millions of dollars a year, but yet they can't get any brand deals. Oh, yeah. I've thought about, man, I've thought about this so many times where you have just such a massive opportunity for people who have, like, you talk about an influencer. If you are the third string cornerback on the Raiders, do you know how many people know your name? Well, especially if you're an offensive player. So, like, if you're the if you're like trying to think, like Hunter Renfro right now, I'm a Raiders fan. Like this dude's name is in social media every day. He's super popular. Uh, he was, you know, won the championship at Clemson. That is a legit bona fide influencer that everyone who plays fantasy football will know, right? But like, he's what the. 55th best receiver in the NFL, but you can piggyback off of all of that, all of the fantasy football players that are out there, and you could promote a ton of different products. Anyways, I digress, but this I, stuff's I, interesting. I have, a, I have a buddy who has started connecting with a lot of these top pick college athletes on LinkedIn. They're all accepting and they're responding to him. Like he's had conversations with Zion Williamson yeah. on LinkedIn because they're they're all being coached. To make business relationships. Yeah, totally. It's it's exciting. I mean, I'm super excited for uh, the athlete empowerment. You know, generation is going to be really, really interesting for marketers. Gladiators, they need they need companies too, man. That's great, <laughs> um, Travis. Thanks so much for hanging out. Appreciate having you. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. 
Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.